Hello and welcome to episode 27 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bavonis, and joining me today is Dr. Carlos Debrera. Dr. Brera works on the front lines of public hospital care and community mental health here in Australia. I'll be talking to Carlos about the psychology of fear and the complicity of the public health system in further isolating some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Dr. Carlos Debrera, how are you? Very well. Thank you, Salvatore, and thanks for having me on. Oh, no, thanks for joining us. You're much busier than I am, that's for sure. Uh, look, I, I was reading recently that the staff at the ABC uh, declined to take a pay freeze to help out the ABC during the coronavirus crisis. And of course, you know, more power to them. Uh, I work at a university. I have a secure job. You know, there are people like me and ABC reporters who simply have had a, a good coronavirus, right? We our pay hasn't been hit at all. We've accumulated savings. But public health orders certainly have harmed many other people. Do you think they've harmed, do you think they've maybe aided the few and not the many? Yes, look, I think there's been a, a disproportionate um, impact of the coronavirus and, and more importantly, the coronavirus lockdown um, in our society, and I think probably across all Western societies, not just our own. Um, and yes, you're right, I think in, in universities and in government, and certainly in public health, our salaries are pretty much guaranteed and underwritten by the taxpayer. But um, certainly there are um, vast swathes of people who are suffering financial um, hardship as a result of the the consequences of the lockdown um, and um, find themselves unemployed and at home and possibly facing um, indebtedness and difficulties making mortgage payments. And I think um, there will be a lag, but at some point um, when the, uh, the rubber meets the road, there is going to be a, um, a widespread um, catastrophe, public health catastrophe, um, with uh, with uh, psychiatric symptoms as one of the core features of this catastrophe. Right. Now, I know psychiatry is your own specialization. Uh, what does it mean when people lose their jobs? I mean, even if they have job keeper and job seeker allowances, is that it? Like, do, are they fine because they have a little bit of income streaming in? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think... There are um, in society. There's certainly a proportion of people who, in the short term, would rather be paid to stay at home than to work. So there are powerful disincentives to employment for a proportion of people in our population in the short term. I think in the medium to long term, the consequences uh, for the individual and for society of of not working um, cannot cannot be understated. I think you know, work provides people with um, structure and routine and the ability to, um, to mix with, with others. Um, it gives them respite from the home, particularly if they've got a difficult um, domestic environment. But I think once you withdraw that, um, you end up with a whole lot of, um, of consequences, which ultimately I think will have uh, uh, psychiatric effects. I think you'll see increases in um, uh, alcoholism, increases in domestic violence, um, increases in, in obesity, increases in smoking, um, and, and a whole range of sort of unintended consequences of the lockdown. So 
So I think the 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 job keeper and job seeker payments are a kind of um, uh, kicking the can down the road a little bit with this uh, w- with this pandemic response. And once those um, financial um, platforms are removed, I think there'll be a, a, a catastrophic collapse, both economically and also in terms of people's mental health. So the short answer is yes, I think employment is very important for people. It's important for, for people's self-esteem. It's important for their self-worth. Um, and once you remove that, what are people left with? Well, not a lot. Mm. Oh, look, we've seen reports from England, especially, of people no longer being willing to comply with mm. uh, coronavirus public health orders if they feel they're ridiculous, if they feel mm. that they're, you know, they're just not well targeted. Now, mm. if, even in England, which has had a very serious uh, pandemic experience, people are kind of having uh, lockdown fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about here in Australia, where Let's face it, uh, I mean, the numbers of coronavirus cases are extremely low. Mm. So I think I I probably, at the start of this pandemic, uh, overestimated the the prospect of of early lockdown fatigue. And I've been quite um, amazed by the the degree of patience and the degree of... um, of goodwill shown by Victorians, particularly in the face of these very prolonged and onerous uh, lockdown restrictions. But I do think that that even Victorians will have limits to their patience. Mm-hmm. And I read this morning in the in the Australian that that um, that the prospect of a third lockdown um, by Daniel Andrews will will, will be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I think there's probably some truth to that. That. As human beings, there are limits to our abilities to withstand long-term um, social isolation and um, uh, and just the complete disruption of social bonds and um, and social activities, and even the even the the ostensibly harmless uh, act of wearing a mask in the long term, I think will will end up um, wearing people's patience, um, and and they'll I think end up refusing to comply with that restriction. Right. So, yes, I think there are limits to the ability for, for, for human beings to withstand these, um, these strictures. And you're right to say that, that, that particularly when they're ridiculous or don't make um, medical sense, I think the, the government is, is playing very dangerous games here because if they compel us to do things which are obviously ridiculous, like wearing a mask if you're out by yourself um, in in the countryside, then they're going to have a lot um, of difficulties, a lot of difficulty asking us to do things that might have an evidence base to them. So it's it's not a very smart tactic, in my view, to force the the populace to do things that that they know are ridiculous. Yeah, Um, that's a really interesting point, because I think most of us are very happy to do our part if something's meaningful. So every restaurant I go to has a QR code to yeah. scan in. And of course I scan in. They ask me to scan in. What's the problem? Mm. It seems reasonable mm. enough. Uh, people are happy to sanitize their hands, you know, mm. especially if they walk into a hospital or a public building. Mm. Um, it's, those, it's those seemingly meaningless restrictions mm. that seem to erode public confidence. Uh, do you think that public confidence in government will decline? I mean, after all, in Victoria, it seems like public op- confidence in government's at record levels despite yeah. the mismanagement in Victoria. 
Yeah, so I think that speaks to a, a, a different psychological phenomenon, which I've talked about, which is a sort of Stockholm syndrome effect that people tend to, some people at least, tend to perversely fall in love with their captors. And, and uh, you know, Andrews has, has done a very good job of being the, the hard man of politics and the hard man of the lockdown, um, extending um, as far as the, the black mask that he wears you'll probably notice he doesn't tend to change the color of that mask. It's very, it's very dominant and very kind of morbid. And I think people um, like the idea of having a strong leader, even if that strong leader's um, policies are ultimately harmful and counterproductive. So I think there is a degree of that in Victoria, although I note that his popularity has been slipping from sort of, I think, popularity of of in excess of 80% now down to, I think, 60 or, or, or thereabouts in a recent poll. So I think even amongst the true believers in Victoria, he's beginning to, to, to lose um, popularity as, as fatigue sets in. But, you know, this just back to the notion of making people do uh, ridiculous things. Well, um, you know, that's quite clever, I think, in some ways, even though it's a dangerous game, as I alluded to before, because if you can compel someone to do something which they know to be ridiculous, then um, that, that that's a very impressive um, way to um, to demoralise a population. And without wanting to get all conspiratorial about things, I think that there is an element um, of, um, of, uh, of 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 masochism and um, and of, of demoralisation of the population that's going on. In Victoria, if you look at the, the the police crackdowns on on quite ostensibly benign um, uh, uh, Facebook posts in Victoria, this is a population that is is now living in fear. I think so. He's a very clever manipulator. Is is uh, is Dan Andrews, um, and whether he's doing it deliberately or is, has an instinct for it, what, what he's doing is very effective. I don't think it's going to be um, an indefinite thing, and I think. He will come a cropper at some point, but it's very effective at the moment. Well, I won't ask you for a pop diagnosis of Dan Andrews at a distance, <laughs> but I no. will ask you to talk about your actual work there because you're working in Melbourne. Is that right? No, I work. I live and work in Sydney. Oh, you're in Sydney. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Melbourne. And ah, okay. Family but, in Melbourne. But even yeah. here in Sydney, of course, you, you have a real, um, you know, forgive the analogy, finger on the pulse of yeah. uh, of our, our health system. And, and yeah. you see things that the statistics won't tell us for a couple of years. Yeah. Have these sudden uh, ice episodes of isolation where people have been pulled out of their social networks, has that led to a, a spike in suicide cases or, or at least attempted suicides that you've seen? Or are more people needing uh, health care? Yeah. And, and are they getting it? So that's an interesting question, and I think we're only just beginning to get some some data on it. I the, I work in a in a hospital um, where the majority of patients are long term patients with chronic and severe mental illnesses. I think um, where we are seeing a spike in demand for mental health services is in um, in the world of of general practice predominantly, and probably to a lesser degree in um, community mental health clinics. Now, I don't work in any of those settings, but I have heard anecdotal reports from colleagues who do mm -hmm. that there has been a marked spike in 
um, depression, anxiety, deliberate self-harm, um, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, domestic violence, um, and just a, a general increase in, um, I guess, uh, a general reduction, I guess, in, 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 uh, in mental well-being. For people who, who didn't have any pre-existing conditions or disorders, and an exacerbation of, of conditions in people who do have pre-existing um, disorders, so depression, anxiety, OCD, certainly the fear that has been um, whipped up by the media about the, the, the contagion of this virus has certainly um, led to an increase in, in, in uh, suffering for people who have obsessive compulsive disorders because all we hear about in the media is how this virus is everywhere and it's on the surfaces and it's in the air. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, we, we are seeing an spike in, in mental health problems and I think that there will be a lag before there is a spike in severe mental health problems, secondary to the economic effects of a lockdown. I do think, like after the Great Depression, we will see a um, uh, we will see record levels of suicide um, in this country. I think that's inevitable. I don't see how that can't be the case. Well, we, we've had actually, a, it seems like we've had a deterioration in the link and poor, some poor sound quality. We'll see if the producer can fix that or if there's anything we can do about it. Uh, let me take a moment just to say hello to uh, our viewers, Anthony, Emily, Gay, Courtney. Thanks for tuning in live. We really appreciate it. Uh, Carlos, there's, there's one related question I'd like to ask you, which is about the uh, ability to access health care. We've heard a lot of stories of you know, people not getting cancer treatment or not getting yeah. heart treatment because hospitals have been no-go zones. Is yeah. that also affecting people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder? Are, are they, have they been unable at times to access healthcare because of hospital restrictions? Um, look, I, I don't know. I mean, from, from my observations um, in the public health system in New South Wales, during the height of the early stage of this pandemic, um, the number of presentations to the emergency departments for mental health problems dropped off significantly. Mm. And, and opposite to what you might expect, we had um, vacancies in our hospital for, for psychiatric beds. And I think there are possibly a number of reasons for that. It, it might be have been the case that such was the, the panic and worry in society that people who might have had a lower threshold for seeking help um, increased that threshold and, and just sort of managed at home. Right. Look, in, in Australia, the vast majority of psychiatric services are community-based services rather than inpatient services. And certainly it is the case that during the pandemic, um, uh, it, it became more difficult for um, community services to, to function effectively and to, to see people in their homes because of the restrictions put on travel and, and, uh, and uh, uh, social distancing and so on and so forth. In response to this, the government um, and the, the, the College of Psychiatrists expanded the use of telehealth, telehealth assessments and telehealth treatments for people with mental illness. Now that's all well and good for people like you or me, as you as you open this conversation with. But for people who have perhaps limited access to information 
technology and to the internet um, and to laptops, um, these people are, are likely to go without necessary treatments. So there are limits to what telehealth can achieve um, in, in, in dealing with people who have perhaps more severe and enduring mental illnesses. Right. Now, Dr. Brera, people who want to find your work can just Google spectator Carlos de Brera. They'll find your column there. Uh, I know you do a lot of public writing, so people, please look out for that. But you've also written for the Center for Independent Studies. And yeah. uh, I'd like to feature this report that you authored, I think it's a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Uh, it is uh, Dying with the Rights on the Myths and Realities of Ending Homelessness in Australia. We've had a lot of talk this year about how easy it was to end homelessness, that once yeah. it became a government priority in March, April, homelessness was just taken care of. Yeah. Um, is that feel-good story true? Have, have we seen the disappearance of homelessness in Australia? It's um, a very good question again. Uh, look, certainly uh, walking around the streets of Sydney, um, it appears that there are fewer homeless people on the streets. I mean, Certainly in the early stages of this pandemic, there were virtually no homeless people um, in the CBD of Sydney that I could see. Um, I think we're seeing numbers uh, of people sleeping rough on the street corners increase as the uh, lockdown restrictions have, um, have lessened in New South Wales. And I think we'll probably have a return to the status quo at some point. But yes, it was remarkable how quickly um, people who'd been sleeping rough for years um, were able to, to access uh, a roof over their head at relatively short notice when, when the government was, was keen to have uh, people off the streets. And look, certainly um, there is some evidence that the homeless population, um, there was an, a Lancet article came out about a week ago in the UK, the homeless population are more vulnerable to COVID uh, infections and um, are more likely to have uh, comorbidities. So, you know, it's certainly the right thing to do to address the needs of, um, of homeless people in the face of this pandemic. But yes, you're quite right. It, it's it, it also the speed with which um, housing was um, was found for for, for these people um, sort of really uh, I think highlighted the um, the lack of will perhaps that government has had prior to the pandemic in housing people who have uh, 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 homeless people who have mental illness. Well, I, I know a lot of the stories were these. Uh Puff pieces about, you know, from the streets of King's Cross to a five-star hotel. Mm. Uh, but clearly five-star hotels are not going to be used as a long-term solution Correct. to the homelessness uh, situation. And mm -hmm. in your own work, I found it very interesting. You distinguish between sleeping rough yeah. and the homeless numbers that are peddled yeah. kind of by the, the homelessness industry, which is yeah. much more focused on solving the problems, it seems, of people who have an inadequate home instead of yeah. the much more difficult problems of often mentally right. ill people sleeping on the streets. What's going to happen to that core, you know, serious uh, problem group, the mentally ill who are sleeping mm. rough? Uh, they're not going to stay in the five-star hotels. Where are mm. they going to go once the pension passes? Well, I, I suspect they'll end up back on the streets, Salvatore, and, uh, and we will revert to policies, the failed policies that have kept them on the streets. And those failed policies are a reluctance to um, manage them assertively and to manage their uh, mental illnesses and their drug and alcohol 
um, dependence problems. Where we will see, um, so, so that's the, the, the that's the rough sleeping population, which I think will probably remain relatively unchanged. Um, that said, there is the the larger population who will um, be at risk of uh, of um, unstable accommodation once the economic catastrophe of the lockdown um, takes a grip. Mm -hmm. I think we will see uh, people who previously had secure accommodation face the prospect of, of eviction and of uh, perhaps more transient accommodation and, and, and maybe even um, sleeping rough, but we'll see once uh, unemployment hits a certain level and once JobKeeper and JobSeeker disappear and, and once the, the uh, economic uh, uh, Armageddon hits us, I think we will see an increase in homelessness. How much of that will be rough sleeping? I'm not sure. Right. Now, Dr. Brer, I have to apologize. This is the moment when I ambush you, but our viewers will be well aware that this is the moment when I ask them for money. <laughs> We'd like to have as members. Uh, for $40, you can join CIS. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if any of you who join, join now during the program so that it can be explicitly linked to the success of this program and reaching out to people around Australia and around the world. You don't have to be an Australian to join the Center for Independent Studies. If you're already a member, you can upgrade from the $40 membership level to the $250 membership level. And if you do, I will personally send you a signed copy of Liberty and Liberalism, the first work of classical liberalism published in Australia by Bruce Smith. Now, this is not the original edition. This is a reprint uh, put together by the Center for Independent Studies under the leadership of Greg Lindsay. I'd love to send you a copy. I have a copy. I have actually mailed out four or five copies of this book to people who contributed at the $250 level. Of course, please just thumbs up the video. Uh, we offer lazy about liking videos, but honestly, if you want more people to see Dr. Debrera talking. If you like the video, the YouTube algorithm will feed it to more people and we'd love to get the word out about that. Dr. Debrera, thank you for being patient while I make a pitch. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Uh, we have some questions. Uh, first, let me go to Anthony. Anthony asks, has anyone done a cost benefit analysis of the measures taken to combat the pandemic? Is someone working on this? Yes, so I found one this morning. Um, uh, undertaken in the United States, and I don't have the reference in front of me, sadly, I should have printed it out, uh, looking at the cost-benefit analysis of comparing um, a complete lockdown to a, a partial lockdown um, to a no lockdown at all. Right. And, um, and interestingly, um, that was a, a study undertaken looking at a US population where, of course, they've had more coronavirus deaths per capita than we have had in Australia. And, and even those researchers, and these researchers are generally quite um, left-leaning in, um, in their political views, um, concluded that um, the cost of uh, a complete lockdown or what they call shelter in place in the US um, uh, would, would only be worthwhile if there were hundreds of thousands of deaths um, more than we're actually seeing at the moment. So they argued for a, a partial lockdown in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Um, Julian Savalescu, who people might know, um, famous uh, Oxford-based um, ethicist um, and traditionally someone who has been a friend of the left, um, uh, published an, uh, 
uh, an opinion piece in the um, conversation um, just uh, on the 17th of this month, um, arguing that in terms of cost-benefit analysis, the the lockdowns that we're seeing in Australia are a sledgehammer, that was his quote, and and probably um, cannot be justified in terms of um, quality of life year uh, uh, analysis or, or other cost-benefit analyses. So there are researchers um, arguing now, which is good to see that maybe the the sledgehammer effect of a complete lockdown can't be justified in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Right. Um, Gay suggests that we should be in regular contact with our friends, especially Victorians, including Mm. them in things we do virtually, in her words, tears, fears, and laughter. Does virtual inclusion, does, does reaching out to your friends and loved ones via, you know, Zoom or Skype or uh, WhatsApp, does that FaceTime, does that help them psychologically or yes. really do you need in-person contact to make a difference? In-person contact is obviously better because it is something that uh, that occurs across a range of sense domains, not just, not just auditory um, and I guess visual with Zoom. Um, but uh, nothing can replace that. But of course, this is a, a second best, um, and 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 we should, of course, communicate with people as often as we can who who are in isolation. Um, sadly, a lot of people who are in isolation don't have the capacity to communicate with others, even virtually. You think of some very elderly people who perhaps are unable to use Zoom or social media, who are kind of languishing by themselves with very little in the way of support in Victoria. Must be tens of thousands of these people, um, and and what 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 happens to the quality of their lives, mm. and why are politicians not more interested in the quality of their lives? Right. Um, Cameron wants to ask if, if COVID nineteen is going to be with us indefinitely. Should the recording and reporting of statistics be reset seasonally? So we think of flu seasons and we give numbers mm. for flu seasons. Well, for COVID, there's just a kind of running tally which gets worse and worse and worse if we accumulated all the flu cases for the last 50 or 100 years we'd have an awful (laughs) big tally of flu look absolutely um i i agree with that and i and this raises the very interesting point that i was going to talk about um relating to the way that that the media and the government um report these statistics right um and, and very briefly, without going into into um, into detail, um, there is a there is a phenomenon that has been recognised for about twenty years or so, and that has been recently reported in our College of Psychiatry in Australia, wherein um, people disproportionately pay attention to to negative aspects of news reporting rather than to the positives. Right. The government and the media have done a very very good job of um, manipulating this um, cognitive bias that we have of disproportionately attaching significance to negative outcomes rather than to positives. So when um, Dan Andrews gets up every day and does his his, his uh, um, black masked um, sort of roll call of the people who have died, he is reinforcing in people's minds that this is a very, very dangerous virus. Um, and um, and then this kind of um, very pessimistic worldview 
is spread through social media contagion. And it's no surprise, therefore, that people overestimate the risks of contracting this virus or the risks of dying from it. And I think the government and the media are quite happy for this overestimation to persist because it allows them to continue the measures that they have undertaken, um, the disproportionate measures, in my view, to reduce um, uh, our abilities to earn an income and to uh, communicate with others and to to, to live a, a normal life. So this idea of, of negativity bias and of negativity dominance and social contagion is very, very powerful. So yes, we should be recording things in an honest way, but not in a way that catastrophizes the situation. Right, right. Actually, I teach an undergraduate quantitative methods class, and I've devoted the entire class this uh, year mm. to focusing on coronavirus statistics. Yeah. <laughs> and how yeah. they're used. And, I am I'm certainly with you on that, that there's a lot mm. of misuse going on. Um, look, Emily Jane would like to ask, uh, she says, doctors in Melbourne have written a plea to Dan mm. Andrews uh, because they're worried about the mental health concerns of lockdown is causing. Yeah. What restrictions would you recommend be lifted uh, or any at all? Uh, well, I, you know, I would recommend um, that that restrictions that have no scientific evidence base to support them be be lifted immediately. Right. Um, and obviously the curfew has gone. That seemed to me a complete waste of time. Um, I would lift uh, travel restrictions. I would um, lift um, restrictions on on dining in public and on social gatherings. And, and as we've proven in New South Wales, it is possible to lift those restrictions, um, but to still... Um, keep the, the spread of the virus at bay. You know, we've got a very good A-B comparison between Victoria and New South Wales. You know, roughly equivalent populations and roughly equivalent demographics, yet we're managing to live with the virus here um, with far fewer restrictions than we have in Victoria currently. Mm -hmm. So I'd reduce most of these restrictions and, and sort of really adopt a, an approach that... Um, prioritizes individual responsibility as they've done in Sweden right. and perhaps to a lesser degree in, um, in uh, Korea and, and Singapore uh, and just get on with our lives, um, managing to live with this virus because who knows how long it's going to be with us. Right. And if it is seasonal, are we going to see a, um, a recrudescence of the um, infection every winter? Um, and is a virus, is a vaccine going to come in the near future? Probably not. So we're going to have to live with it, whether we whether we like it or not. Hey, Vladimir Putin already has a vaccine and Donald Trump will have one by November 3rd. So watch what I you heard. say. Congratulations. <laughs> but let me, sure. let, me pick up, let me pick up on that issue of, of individual responsibility. The CIS, mm. of course, thinks of itself as a classical liberal think tank. We're after all peddling yeah. liberty and liberalism here. The show mm. is called On Liberty. And part of that is the idea that people should take responsibility for their own lives and, and yeah. specifically for their own health. Now, I, mm. I think there was a widespread popular demand for government to do something in February mm -hmm. and in March to keep mm. countries safe. Government spectacularly failed in February mm. and March to keep their population safe. But yeah. now, um, Shouldn't we be seeing a shift from the government has to do something to, okay, we've got the basics down, now mm. let's shift to individuals taking responsibility? Yes, we should. Uh, whether we will or not, 
I'm not so sure about. Um, there, there, there is a, there is a, uh, a phenomenon um, wherein complex problems are best solved at a local level rather than at a, at a central level in the sort of hierarchy. And um, this is indeed a complex problem. Um, and, uh, and it has been shown, I think, in Sweden at least, that, that, that solving this at a, at a local level is optimal. And, of course, the, the most local you can get is individual. And I think we're well and truly now um, up to speed with um, hand washing and, um, and keeping distant from one another and staying at home when sick. Um, uh, and and I, I think it's time that the population be, be trusted to do these things, to stay at home if they've got a, a flu-like illness and so on and so forth, without having to beat them over the head with rules and regulations in, indefinitely, which I think ultimately will be counterproductive. So yes, I would love to see a shift away from government diktat towards individual responsibility. Um, you know, interestingly, the, the one um, demographic that in Victoria who are very keen for these restrictions to end are the elderly, people over 65, mm. who potentially have the most to lose from the, uh, a lessening of restrictions, but who would like to have um, um, quality um, of life rather than longevity necessarily. Right. Although, of course, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, you know, if, if people don't have quality of life, they're probably less likely to live long anyway. Uh, so, so I think that, you know, all these calls to, to protect the elderly at all cost um, need, to be, need to be taken with a, with a grain of salt because it's the elderly who are most disadvantaged by these lockdown measures. Right, and they, these calls, uh, these uh, rules are, ironically, paternalistic. <laughs> ironically, because yeah. it's it's us being paternalistic towards our own parents. Yeah. Uh, look, Anthony's curious of your view on contact tracing. He, he's mm. wondering, what do you think? How good is our contact tracing system? Uh, mm. How does it rank with other systems? You know, mm. are other countries like Singapore doing this better? Do you have any feel for that? The success of contact tracing in Australia. No, I don't, and and that's really outside of my oh. of my uh, of my expertise to, right. to comment on. Um, well, I will, I will point people to my foreign policy article about COVID safe. <laughs> right, good, good. <laughs> Which well, we don't um, hear about these days. No, it sort of disappeared, didn't it? Really, uh, everybody downloaded. It. I didn't, but other people did, um, and and that sort of disappeared a little bit. I think if you ask Gladys. Berejiklian should tell you that contact tracing is fantastic in New South Wales. Um, it's probably less um, effective in Victoria, um, but I don't have a, a firm opinion one way or another as to as to whether or not it's a good thing or whether we should have more or, or less of it. Um, what we should have is less panic, I think, and a greater sense of proportion, and perhaps a, an acceptance that this virus is for the most part um, either asymptomatic or relatively mild in terms of its symptoms, um, and we need to take that into account when um, formulating public policy. Um, and Alan Jones is right, you know, he says on TV that the government needs to have an honest conversation with the population about the dangers of this virus and how they've been exaggerated. And, and I've not heard a politician really talk um, sensibly about the, the risks of this pandemic. They, they all, whether the Liberal or Labor, want to exaggerate the, the risks um, without having an honest conversation with the population. And as I said, it's very hard to 
um, to undo panic and to undo fear uh, because we tend to attach greater significance to, to negative um, consequences rather than to, to, to positive ones. Now, Australia, of course, is a federal system. Are there states mm. and territories that are doing it well? I mean, is there anyone you would hold up as an exemplar of public communication or mm. uh, you know, appropriate uh, taking an appropriate approach here? Well, I mean, the best of the bad bunch is probably New South Wales, from, from what I've read. It's hard to comment on other states because we're not allowed to go there. And, of course, um, you know, they're... they're it's 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 difficult to know really um, what what's going on in individual states in in regards to the response. Um, I'm not a, a fan of, of of border closures, and I think the the evidence behind them in terms of uh, spread of, of of illness is very very limited. And I know that the federal government health advice at the start of this pandemic was that border closures were were uh, not necessary, and it was the individual states that made those decisions. Um, I look at, at West Australia, for example, which is basically now virtually seceded from the rest of the country, <laughs> um, and they've had, I think, zero cases. But what happens when they open up and they have their first case? Right. Um, I think that's almost inevitable, as we've seen in New Zealand, which had a very hard uh, initial lockdown. So uh, I don't know. I, I think I think this. Um, I, I think in some ways this has tested. Um, federalism and has probably led to um, um, an ugly parochialism in some ways. Um, Victoria, Queensland and West Australia probably being the worst offenders, perhaps Tasmania as well. Um, and I think Gladys is probably doing a, a good job of balancing um, uh, sensible uh, uh, antiviral measures with um, uh, optimising people's individual liberties and, and, uh, and business um, prosperity. Now, we're going to be wrapping up in just a minute or two, but we yeah. do have some final questions. I have one from Stephen and one from myself. Uh, Stephen asks, how do we support people with mental illness who perhaps uh, can't themselves uh, do social distancing or personal mm. hygiene very well? Mm. So I have this problem uh, at my workplace because um, I struggle to get my patients to, to wear shoes or to, to shower regularly. Um, because they have very severe mental health problems. So wearing a mask for many of them is, is an impossibility. Right. And it's a very, very difficult thing to, to impose. Now, that's assuming that you think that, that a healthy individual wearing a mask is a good thing. I, I tend to think that it, that it isn't. Um, so, look, we, we, you, you, you do your best with that population, just as you would with perhaps people who had um, Alzheimer's dementia or or people who had other sort of um, cognitive problems, you, you you do your best to look after them, and you do your best to um, to try and limit the spread of infection um, in in uh, institutional settings. But I but I, I think that um, again, even for people with severe mental illness, the costs of the costs of these measures um, probably outweigh the benefits. Right. Um, and. And certainly my patients have had um, very severe restrictions on their individual liberties um, in terms of their ability to, to go shopping, for example, or to have leave with family or carers because of the lockdown restrictions. Um, and these patients often don't have a voice and have little in the way of sort of public advocacy right. and, um, and, and aren't likely to complain. 
So, so much as I'd like to see my patients not get sick from coronavirus, I'd also like to see them not have to live even more restrictive lives than they already lead. Right, right. So let me ask you a final question. When, when yeah. this is all over, yeah. whether it's next year or 2022 or 2023, mm-hmm. whenever it is, if you had to guess, are you going to guess that in Australia, more people have died of coronavirus or mm. more people have died of government policies put in place to address the coronavirus? Mm. Oh, golly. Um, that's, uh, that's it's an unfair question. It is, it is a little <laughs> but, bit. But I'm curious uh, your thoughts on it. Even if you can't answer the question, you can think about let, let me answer. Let me answer it this way: If it turns out in five years, if we could invent a time machine and travel five years into the future, and it turns out that the number of deaths um, or the number of shortened lives, let's say, um, caused by these lockdown measures and the ensuing economic catastrophe, exceed the numbers of people who died of coronavirus, um, I would not be surprised. All right. That's all I will say. And I will say that that even if we don't have to consider deaths, um, if we consider um, uh, uh, morbidity from other medical conditions or suffering, I think we'll see we'll see that far exceed um, the amount of suffering caused directly by the virus. Right. Dr. Carlos Dobrera, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Salvatore, for having me. Next week, we'll be back at the usual 10 a.m. slot. I won't be here, but we'll have a guest host uh, with Simon Cowan speaking to our senior research director, Robert Carling. The producer of, uh, of, of On Liberty is Emily Holmes, executive producer Max Hawk Weaver. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Rubonis. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And I'll be watching next week. I hope you'll be watching, too. <laughs>